welcome to season two of the Film Illiterates podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm your host with the least, Joe Campbell, and joining me today is the Patton made of satin, Alex Patton. Hello. Yeah. And the stone who's a clone, Nathan Stone. Uh, that is actually a, a fact. I am a clone. Um, my cl- other clone is running around, so somewhere up in Washington. So, Joe, if you see him, uh, shoot him dead, please. This is a true fact, and I may already have, so don't, oh, don't sweat okay. it, Nate. Well, if you've already taken care of it, that's good. So, uh, as you heard, yes, we are into season two of Film Alerts Podcast, our first episode of 2020, and we're starting off a new season of podcasts, new vibe, new soundtrack, well, maybe same old vibe, but new, new stuff. Uh, we're going to have new content and uh, the same old schlubs just talking about movies that you really don't care about. Uh, so that won't change. We're still here. We're just different, but the same. That's the best. I, I'm, I'm killing this intro. Yeah, you are. But basically all we can need to say is well, it's 2020 and we're still here, motherfuckers. Damn straight. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, 2019's over, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We survived the hangover, New Year's Eve. Uh, all of us had a good time for the holidays, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. yeah more or less. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to look back at 2019, look at some of our favorite movies. We're going to go through our top 10 favorite movies, or in Alex's case, because Alex doesn't watch movies, we're going to hear what Alex has been listening to, because Alex, that's what you're good at, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what does that supposed to mean? I feel like I just insulted you, but not really. Well, he kind of is just like the third wheel that just sits in the corner, um, just collecting dust, you know, like a good vinyl record is supposed to. But he has the best taste out of out of all three of that us. That is true. He does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now that we're done buttering up, Alex, um, that stupid asshole. Uh, let's move on. So, uh, because we're going to be spending the whole episode talking about our top tens of 2019, we're going to skip our usual what we watch section and just dive straight into the meat of the the movies. Well, uh, let's get this thing kicked off. So we're going to start off with number 10. Uh, so Alex, um, number 10, you're, you're going to be giving us your top 10 albums uh, of uh, 2019. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, the two, literally the only two movies that I've watched from 2019, we've already done episodes on, and that was Jojo Rabbit and Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And if, if you want me to rank them, I preferred Lighthouse, which you probably got from the video we did on it and jojo rabbit was good but uh not quite what i had, had hoped it would be honestly i think it was if it wasn't for me dragging you to the movie theaters uh you <laughs> probably wouldn't have seen much yeah really yeah <laughs> I, I would not have seen anything this year so uh why don't you go ahead and kick, kick us off alex what was your number 10 album of the year all right so number 10 album um was one i hadn't listened to until like um, a couple months ago um it's uh by kai whiston it's no world as good as mine um it's kind of it's a real interesting one it's fuses a bunch of different genres primarily a bit of like uk based and experimental rock but it's got some post-rock and more electronic stuff kind of mixed in it's really kind of all over the place and really interesting i use that word a lot to describe stuff but it is really kind of just an interesting album. It's mostly all instrumental, but there's a lot of great different passages. Um, I think the standout track for me is probably three uh, blue dots. That's probably my favorite. I just really like the way the track per- kind of progresses and moves along. Um, it does have uh, it does have a couple features on it. Joe Peterson, who I'm not familiar with, but there's another band that's featured on there called the Physics Ho- House Band. They're a uh, UK-based uh, math rock kind of prog rock group and i had listened to an ep of theirs a little while ago and that was really good um but this was yeah this was a really solid album it's kind of a little kind of background music almost it's something that you can definitely put on and just have on giving you kind of a soundtrack to whatever you're doing and working on or you know wherever you're driving which is kind of mostly how i ended up listening to it but it's definitely something that you can kind of if you really wanted to focus on it you could there's a lot of stuff to kind of pick apart and um you know a lot of stuff that can really reveal itself uh through more of like a focus listening i mean it's number 10 for me beating out a a good bit of other stuff and only something that kind of kind of you know really kind of caught my eye 
in like the past couple of months or so because it only came out on like beginning of November. Yeah, it, it, it was a late release as well from what I'm mm-hmm. looking at. So Yeah, and I, I think part of the reason I like it too and why it wasn't so like – I mean I've, I've listened to music like that before, but specifically has done work with um, – another artist that I really liked called Igloo Ghost. They He put a collaborative album with him. I think Kai Wisdom has a little bit more rock influence, whereas uh, Igloo Ghost is definitely goes more for like the glitch and sort of wonky stuff. But um, I'm sure kind of complimentary genres that they get into and albums and whatnot, I'm sure it's gonna, it would be good either way. Oh, cool. All right. I, I'm always interested in new stuff as well, so I'm, I'm kind of glad you mentioned this today because I, I like hearing random new stuff so if this is one you recommend I, I give it a shot yeah absolutely yeah i think i think you might enjoy it yeah so you said that one work, works great as uh casual listening though more alex so yeah it does work pretty well as like kind of like i said background music it's not something that's you know something that's boring you know that only works as background music um like i was kind of talking about it's something that you can definitely really get into and really pick apart because there's a lot there's a lot going on in, in you know, in, in the album. There is variety in it, so you don't get bored of, like, one style or the other. And, you know, it's kind of breaking things up a little bit um, and kind of, you know, doing something different, uh, almost, I guess, within each track. You know, it's not monotonous as well, which I like. Awesome. All right, Nate? Okay, uh, I guess we'll go into my uh, top 10. Uh, my number 10 pick for this past year was uh, the wonderful black comedy thriller, Ready or Not. So at midnight, you have to play a game. Why? It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game. What game? Hide and seek, are we really gonna play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you. So there's no way for me to win, right? I mean, stay hidden till dawn. <laughs> no, thank you. Good luck. Joe, I think you had a chance of watching this um, as well. Uh, this is a film by the director duo Matt Bettinelli uh, Oplin and uh, Tyler Gillant. I guess these guys like had a history of like doing YouTube videos in the past um, and really branded their style. And this was like their big first uh, feature film. I forget. Yeah. So they, I, I, I was actually a fan of them back when they were Chad, Matt, and Rob on YouTube. Collaboratively, they're known as Radio Silence. I think there's like three of them that kind of go in and out depending on you know help writing and directing. Yeah. No, but. I, it's like, you know, their history is kind of like doing these uh, small scale stories, you know, not much of a budget, kind of like it's a bit more of a collaborative anthology project that they've worked on. And so this was right, like, right. Except, except for Devil's Do, which was I think was their first like official kind of slightly larger budgeted movie that they did all on their own. For me, this was a fun movie from beginning to end. I love how it's so committed to it and yet so serious and yet you just have fun with it as well like this movie's not afraid to take itself silly sometimes like there's times when you know this one of the the brother-in-laws doesn't know how to shoot a crossbow and he's looking up on youtube about how to shoot a crossbow it's just like that (laughs) kind of stuff just makes me laugh um but what i liked about this as well is is the main actress she basically just comes into his thinking like a very doe-eyed, you know, innocent looking girl. And she has to get very Rambo at some times. Like there's a part where she's like uh, loading up with shells and shotguns. But you think that's going to be how she's going to, you know, survive this whole night. But no, she kind of goes through a lot. And you kind of see all these hurdles and these scenarios that she has to get out of. And you think, man, this girl's like tough as nails. And I think for me, the ending, it, it leads itself up to it. But it was one of the most rewarding endings I have ever seen in any movie. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, this has got to be a Joe Campbell movie because everything about this is just rings to his interest. And and for me, it worked too. It was just one of those premises where it was fun enough. It was dark enough. It it was very contained and just well executed. And I enjoyed it. Awesome. I will not say much about it because that may or may not pop up on my list as well. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> save it for later then. <laughs> All right, so my number 10, and uh, I'm going to take a stab at, I, I, I haven't seen your list, but I'm guessing this is going to pop up on your list. I'm guessing you're going to be wondering why it's not higher on my list. Mm-hmm. My number 10 is Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho. I, I'm actually not surprised by that because I remember a couple years ago, uh, we had reviewed Silence, and that movie was number one. That was uh, number 10 for me. So yeah, we're just 
polar sometimes in our choices. We're, 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 we, we, we shuffle around the same lists. We do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this is from uh, Bong Joon-ho. He is the same guy who directed Snowpiercer, Okja, The Host, Memories of a Murder. Uh, the only ones that I've seen of his have been The Host and Snowpiercer so far. I love The Host. I love this guy's kind of sense of humor he has in his movies. And this movie has that in spades. This, this, is, this is just a fun ride. I love this movie from beginning to end. It's really a, a movie about a con artist family just kind of trying trying to survive in this world of the rich and the wealthy. And it has a lot of interesting things to say about uh, class differences and class warfare and all that. But I think first and foremost, it's just it works as a twisty thriller, which is going into this. I knew absolutely nothing about it. All I knew was the title, the poster and the director. So I went into this completely blind and it was a fun ride trying to guess, all right, what kind of twist is going to come next? And, you know, what's what's going to happen? And of, and of course, and every, everything, everything gets ratcheted up crazier and crazier as the movie goes on. Um, I've seen a lot of people throwing out a lot of five star like masterpiece reviews like this is one of the greatest movies ever made, that kind of stuff, which I don't quite get. I mean, to me, it's a great twisty thriller with some fantastic moments. I mean, I've got a lot of issues with it, too, just little little things here and there kind of like, Oh, that, you know, you know, this plot thread doesn't quite line up with what we've seen before. And there, there are seams in it, but as far as just a tight fun ride full of, you know, gasps and laughs, it, it, it works. It absolutely works for me. So yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this movie. I, I thought for whatever reason, because uh, I, I haven't heard a whole lot about the movie, but for whatever reason, I, I thought that was a horror movie. I mean, I mean, it is kind of a horror comedy. It's a thriller slash horror comedy. There's definitely of. elements of horror in it, for sure. Yeah. Most of the comedy comes from a sort of like, oh my gosh, what the fuck are they doing kind of a thing. Like like little moments where you're like, oh my gosh, they just did that. Like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. The comedy aspect was not something I was aware of. So I'm actually more interested in in, in watching it. So yeah, so, so long as it has, as it has that kind of like lighter edge i guess you could say that makes me a little bit more interested in, in it yeah it's a lot of fun i think you might enjoy it alex i think you okay. would at least like i guess watch it just because i i guarantee you as the award season comes up this movie's going to get talked about a lot more so it'd be yeah. cool. oh, oh, i think it's going to win best foreign film for sure because what other foreign films has everyone been uh, watching i mean i guess i guess portrait of a lady on fire maybe i mean that one's not even out in theaters yet but i i do have heard good things oh, about that's that right one too, yeah. <laughs> it isn't it's a 2020 movie isn't well, it it's no it's it still counts as 2019 it's just having a late release because okay gotcha yeah all right, Alex, what's your number nine? All right, so number nine for me is a collaborative album between Uniform and The Body. Um, this is their second collaborative album that they've done. The first one was last year. Um, and The Body is is one of my favorite bands. Um, and they're what I like about them is not only are they really prolific, like they come out with like an album, a split, a collaborative, or an EP or something like that along with it. I think like it was like 2017, 2018. They came out with like three different releases. Um, I'm not not as knowledgeable about Uniform as much. Um, I did listen to their last collaboration with the Body from last year, and while while that was a re- that was a good album, it just it it didn't really stick with me. It didn't really do it for me much. But uh, this one is, I think they kind of worked a bit more, worked out. Uh, it it just worked out better. Uh, just to, just to clarify, this is the album "Everything That Dies Someday Comes Back." Yeah, I forgot I didn't mention the name of it. Yeah, that's that one. <laughs> what genre is it? See, so that's the thing is, the body has changed genres quite a bit, and they've incorporated a lot of different stuff. They they started out as a sludge metal band back in the late two thousand, early two thousands, and then have slowly progressed towards more like industrial power electronics. Um, so, but I'm, I'm, and I'm less familiar with 
mostly what the uniform or what uniform has done, but I know they're mostly kind of a uh, noise rock. So this album does have both have kind of like both those elements. It does fall more into like the um, industrial metal, electro industrial, with elements of like you know, like I said, power electronics. There's some drone metal and noise rock and different stuff here and there. Uh, so in kind of in the same vein as the Kai Wiston album, it's it's essentially just like a melting pot of a bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, everything that dies someday comes back. The same kind of thing where it just takes these two bands and everything that they've done and just puts it all together, meshes it. Some of it doesn't work out as much as, as other stuff, but some of it really just like nails it. Um, I don't know if I have like any particular one that really stuck out to me uh, as far as tracks go. Um, so I think that the album is just kind of best taken in as, as a whole, uh, if, if you're going to actually check it out. But if you want something that's definitely um, a bit challenging, a bit, quite a bit abrasive, as, as a lot of what the body does is not something that's really easy to get into and really easy to listen to. Like, this is not something for, like, just casual listening. This is an album you kind of want to throw on and, you know, kind of uh, know what's what's going to happen as you, as you get into it. Because um, it could catch you off guard if you're not really ready for that kind of thing. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, this definitely just just from listening to you talk about it. This definitely doesn't sound like as as much up my alley as the uh, the previous one you <laughs> talked about. <laughs> yeah, I I doubt. <laughs> I'd say this one is probably the the like furthest out there. Maybe the furthest out there. Um, as far as like probably out of range of what your guys' musical taste is, but I it really worked for me, and I'm into a lot of like kind of different weird stuff. So it was. It was exactly what I wanted. Yeah, it keeps it interesting, you know? Yeah. Awesome. All right, Nate. All right. Uh, my number nine pick was, um, this was kind of a, an interesting sleeper film, but I remember when it came out, a lot of critics were talking about it. So I decided to give it a shot. And that is The Last Black Man in San Francisco by uh, Joe Talbot. To describe this movie, it's really hard because it's not just one thing, but I guess the best way I can describe it is... Um, these uh, two struggling African-Americans living in this kind of a poor neighborhood of San Francisco uh, just find out that the owner of this house that the guy, uh, Jimmy Fells, claims that his dad actually built and constructed from his bare hands are kind of going through a separation. So while the couple's like taking leave from this house, him and his friend decide to just squat in it and basically claim it as their own. And it becomes this whole, like, I would say like a, a whole kind of commentary just about stories we tell, you know, our legacies and what stories we're willing to believe just to see what worth and value that we have. And there's this nostalgic element to it, but also this human like element to it as well, where people do invest like a lot in what property they live in just because they have an identity with that. They have something that they built their entire world around and their worldview of things. And this movie explores that in a very subtle and a very kind of like you know, auteur kind of a sense. But I don't know, just listening and just watching a lot of people's review on this. And just even when I saw it, you could see there's a lot of heart in here. There's a lot of just interesting things going on. There's a scene that happens later on where one of the friends is a playwright and he's trying to get something off the ground and he produces this play that is kind of like sums up the whole movie in a nutshell, but it's so, it's an experience just to watch on the screen because when it does happen, you're, you weren't expecting that kind of level of just drama to unfold and it just breaks boundaries a lot everywhere. Um, and I don't know, I, I, for me, I guess I'm really fascinated with just like African-American like filmmaking in this new day and era. You know, we're in an interesting place where I'm seeing just a lot of good stuff. And this is just one that just stood out. Um, I, and I, when I saw it in the theater, I just kind of walked out just having a new perspective of things. Um, that would so, actually yeah. be about 100 years late for this style. We can see from his gingerbread trim, this was built sometime in the 1850s. Uh, 1946. <laughs> I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, dude, man. No architect in the 1940s was building in this style. That's probably true, but this wasn't built by an architect. My grandfather built this. 
He came here in World War II. He bought this lot and he built this house. The stairs, these windows, the columns, the archways, the witch hat, the balustrades, the fish scales, this balcony, that wall to keep you all the fuck out. All of it by Jimmy Fails the First with his own two hands in 1946. Looking at the poster for it, what is, did you mention what era this is set in? Yeah, this actually takes place kind of like in a, a more of a modern day setting. Uh, okay. Because the director, I think, was working on a very shoestring budget for this, like they only had a, enough money to shoot for like less than a month in this uh, property. So they said a lot of it kind of like in just modern day, but a lot of what takes place is kind of like just with, you know, the housing recession and a lot of, you know, people not able to afford to live in San Francisco who have to like live in like um, squatter homes or even just outside vacancies where, and, and some people not even having homes. So it really tackles the whole poverty and homeless issue face front. And it, it's having that setting in San Francisco, a very beautiful city where you see a huge class like uh, separation. It's, it's so interesting just to have somebody kind of like just be ballsy enough to actually show this on that level it's cool yeah i i had actually for the first time i actually visited san francisco um this earlier this year um and so it was, yeah it was really cool to be able to see that so this yeah this gets me interested and especially because it you kind of mentioning it explores the kind of idea of you know how someone builds kind of their whole maybe not whole life but their life around where they live and like their their home exactly I, that's a really cool, fascinating um, uh, topic to really get into. And and like I said, it transcends that idea of a home and just family and just your identity uh, in just encapsulating the whole city. And I think, honestly, in my opinion, this is probably one of the best shot movies to be set in San Francisco. Like, you know, we look back like in the 50s when San Francisco was a backdrop setting for a lot of Hitchcockian films and even just a lot of other, you know, Cary Grant movies. But today, if you're to find like a good example of like what's a good movie that is just shot and just captures the essence of San Francisco, this is right up there. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen this one yet, but it's one that I've seen uh, popping up on more and more people's lists now that we're getting closer to awards season. So I might have to check that out before the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say give it a shot if you're interested. But yeah. All right. My number nine is Ready or Not, directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette. Nate, you said that this one struck you as being uh, right up my alley. You are correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had fun with this movie. I mean, it just hits all the right beats. I think like, you know, Joe, you just would love this movie to death. And lo and behold, yeah. Yeah, it's quirky. It's funny. It's dark. It's got kind of this um, morbid sense of humor about it. Any any, any movie that throws around dead bodies as a punchline is A-OK in my book. (laughs) Um, And again, I... That that wonderful, wonderful over the top ending is, as you said, they oh so satisfying mm-hmm. to see that a, a a movie that's that finally just just goes for it. Yeah, you know, it just unleashes like you know what uh, we're building up this anticipation: is this actually real or not? And then suddenly, it just what comes out is like, whoa. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great payoff to a build up where the whole movie's about you know what's actually going on, mm-hmm. and the movie just definitively answers answers every, everything at the end. It, there, there's no room for any of these these Inception style like is it or is it not kind of a thing. And it's, it, the way it plays out is just such a fun way. But the whole movie in in general, I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but it's it's a, it's a damn fun time at the movies. It's, it's, this movie was designed to be watched with a group of people who are all in the same wavelength as you and are all enjoying it and laughing their asses off throughout. Um, I mean, it shows its budget a little bit. I mean, I know it's got a bigger budget than the Radio Silence's previous movies, but it's still it's not like a huge budgeted movie. So that, that shows a little bit. But everyone, all the players are having such a blast that it doesn't really matter. I think one of the things that they cover up around like, you know, those little um, nuances is just the the story and just a lot of just gags that we can all relate to i mean i think there's just one i think it involves a highway and she's trying to call out to someone and just how the driver driving by just takes off we've all been there or have done situations like that and her reaction is just 
I don't know. I got the biggest gut laugh Holy out of that. Shit. I had to play along so that I can get you out. It's insane. They think they have to kill you before sunrise. Or something very bad will happen to the family. If we don't find her and perform the ritual, we're all dead. Found her. Yeah, one of my big complaints about a lot of the, this style of movie in particular uh, is how they often try to do convoluted workarounds to find ways to make something work. So characters will be just as smart or just or just as dumb as they need to be to keep the plot going. So, you know, if the main character is about to escape, oh no, all of a sudden they do something stupid or all of a sudden the villains are in the perfect place to catch them. Or, you know, if they're about to be caught, the villains would, would be just dumb enough to miss them as they walk by. And this movie... From what I remember, it it didn't have a whole lot of that. It it really played with everything very well by establishing just how smart these characters are from the from the outset. So you know, when someone does a dumb thing, you're like, well, that's been established as being a dumb character, or this character is smart, but they're also a little bit relatable. So you know, if they, what they do makes sense, and I think that that movie worked around it by building these these, these characters up in very plain ways yeah i think what i, I kind of just in this will be my last comment on it i think what i loved about this movie is it's trying to do the same thing i think that knives out was kind of doing uh you know it being kind of like all set around this um house this family and just seeing just the kinds of games or the kind of malicious behavior they have towards each other but this just takes advantage of its set so wonderfully like these guys who wrote and even just like directed this just knew every like uh corner or crevice to kind of feel like okay well she needs to get out this way here's how we can make this work and i don't know i think the set just lends itself perfectly for that oh yeah fantastic set design fantastic costume work it's just a well put together movie mm -hmm. absolutely all right alex what's your number eight all right so number eight for me is um rare field ceiling by yellow eyes um, this is a atmospheric black metal album. Yellow Eyes is a, is a pretty cool band. They're from New York. Really, just done atmospheric black metal. But this this is a good one. Their previous album it was uh, Immersion Trench Reverie. That was a really good one too. Also made it on I, uh, my 2017 list. Um, but this one, I think, was a little bit better. This one had a little bit more atmosphere to it. Uh, I I love when albums really can build a strong. Uh, atmosphere, which is generally why I go for atmospheric black metal anyway, over just kind of like the standard aggressive black metal. But um, yeah, this one had built a stronger atmosphere than the previous album that they did. Um, and I think that's mostly done or mostly credited to more of the um, like field recordings and like samples that they, that they've included in the, uh, in the album. Um, I think I was reading an interview where with the uh, lead vocalist, he was talking about how where they got some of them, and I think one of them he they got were just on a trip in Europe, um, and they met up with a some locals out out like like I think it was like out in Eastern Europe, way out in the middle of nowhere, and they were doing some sort of like ritual or like chant or something like that, and they actually allowed him to record it, and so he was able to take that recording, put it on the album, that sounds great all the way through. Um, but yeah, like I said, it. You know, atmospheric black metal is kind of my favorite genre of metal to really get into, and it's the one I've really kind of grown attached to mostly through the years. And this is just an incredible uh, example of it, of modern. I, I do like this um, uh, review that someone has on uh, Gilead Media. Oh, yeah. Uh, how they describe it is, like falling into a void, a sound that completely envelopes you in a state of constant mental discomfort, but also in a strange calmness. So I'm getting kind of like it's it's warm and cold at the same time. And it's... Yes. Atmospheric black metal, black metal itself, is, is generally described as cold, mostly because of its like kind of origins be at least for like second wave black metal being in Norway, like Northern Europe. So it's definitely got that colder aspect. Now with these guys being from the U S um, you know, you, they, you do get a little bit of different sounds in there. And so 
you know, kind of USBM does can experiment a little bit more. Um, they're not really tried to being, you know, the, the true cult black metal that a lot of the European kind of gets stuck in. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely builds, builds itself its own little world and you're kind of just, you're stuck in. And while, yeah, there are, it's, it's a little unsettling at times overall, you're kind of, it's overall, it doesn't leave you feeling I guess, uncomfortable the entirety of the time. I do like the album cover. It's just basically this long, dark, uh, uh, ultraviolet, like, you know, infrared, like camera shot of a tunnel. Isn't it weird? Yeah. It's so cool. (laughs) It's, it's, it just, I just keep thinking like, there's going to be like some shot of a ghost or a dead person, like in the corner somewhere. Yeah. Like that little red light on it. Yeah. You think that's something, (laughs) but yeah, I, like I said, uh, yeah, that's my number eight pick. I think it's, yeah, it's a solid entry in the the band's discography. So I'm, I'm super excited to see what else, what else they can come up with here. Awesome. Nate. All right. Number eight for me was, uh, the long expected after 10 years of Marvel movies, Avengers Endgame. Hey, that's my number eight too. Oh, what do you know? Okay, so maybe both you and I will just share this spot then. You know, we'll just like talk about it. Um, for me, the reason why this uh, this movie just got so high on my list is um, I had the chance to actually seeing this at the uh, Chinese theater in L.A. Um, on on the big you know seventy millimeter IMAX screen, and we got like front row seats. So I was looking and watching all this like you know just the final conclusion to this Thanos storyline, to the Infinity Stone storyline, was just magnificent. It's like I couldn't have asked for just a better venue to see this. And honestly, in my opinion, I like this a lot better than Infinity War. I know that might be sacrilegious to a lot of people out there, but I just think there's something about the drama and just the aftermath of The Vanishing when Thanos snaps his fingers that I just felt a little bit more just believable. I think everyone kind of remembers Infinity Wars because of that final scene. But I think for me, there's just a lot of great moments that just stood out. I mean, we got uh, Professor Hulk. We got Fat Thor. Um, just a lot of th- those just images still stick with me. I think it sticks with a lot of people. But it's just them like p- trying to like, you know, go back and just reverse what Thanos did. And it just building up to this humongous, just climactic battle at the very end. And just a lot of stuff that that happens in that final battle is just seen on the big screen was so gosh darn rewarding. And I don't know. I think this was just a nice cap to just a legacy of what the Marvel movies, what uh, Kevin Feige was, you know, been working at all these years. And I don't know. I think everyone just brought their A game. telling everybody they should move on some do but not us even if there's a small chance we owe this to everyone who's not in this room to try we will whatever it takes Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So, this might be, I I haven't looked at my previous list, but this might be the first time that uh, an MCU movie has hit my top 10 list. Certainly the first since maybe Thor Ragnarok or Iron Man 3. And I, I think the reason for that is that this movie is just such an achievement from so many different angles. For me, at least, it's easy to compare this to the recent uh, The Rise of Skywalker, which which came out, which also, uh, I mean, similarly, was was meant to be the capper to a multi-film saga. It was supposed to be kind of the accumulation of all sorts of these different individual movies. Avengers Endgame, I think, does this very well because it, it, it pulls in strings from all sorts of these different movies, ties them up in one coherent story that works as its own individual story, but pulls stuff from the previous movies and it, it, it ties off any i mean there weren't any real loose ends but it connects character arcs to the previous movies whereas rise of skywalker is just kind of frantically running around trying to figure out what it wants to be and pulling stuff from the past in a desperate attempt to make something coherent which it isn't yeah no i i agree with what you're saying and i think a huge factor that lends itself to that is just uh 
that half of the Avengers are not present for a good portion of this movie. And we get to just only focus on the character arcs that we are, we've been following from beginning to end. And it's really just us not like discarding like the ones who are important, like Dr. Strange, um, Captain Marvel and stuff like that. But like they come at the very end when they need to be, but really we are following everyone who we need to see them grow. We need to see them, you know, come to some kind of like a, a finale for where they've been journeying all this time. And I think that's what made this work is that we're not so focused on every character. We're just focused on the ones that matter throughout all this journey. Right. And, and their, their arcs coexist with each other. They work together. Everything. I mean, I mean, this movie is is such a, just such a meticulously crafted movie. You can tell from the writing standpoint, they plotted everything out and, you know, figured out where all the little pieces fit together. You know, Tony Stark's arc, where does that fit in relation to, Black Widow's arc or Hawkeye's arc or the Hulk's arc, you know, and what what can we show? What do we have time to show? What is not necessary? And you can tell that they put a lot of time into just structuring this thing out very tightly, which leads into my next thing about this movie in that this is a three-hour movie and it has no fat on it. No, and that's, I think, uh, something that I think just made it work is that the pacing of it just is better. Whereas, like, you're right, in Rise of Skywalker, they only have two hours to kind of, like, just jam all this in, um, especially after just only three movies. This is after after the 20 movies that they've made and them just having that time now. And you're right, even though they have that uh, expansive amount of time, there's not a dull moment in this. Yeah, I I was shocked that—so I saw this three times in theaters— and I was shocked how each time those three hours went by so quickly. It is a three-hour movie that feels like a one-and-a-half to two-hour movie. It is It is not slow. It moves by quickly. It really is kind of multiple movies jammed into one movie because there are different sections where they have different goals. But it all flows together, to get together so well. The characters interact so well together. It's just... I I just got to give this movie props for just being an achievement in filmmaking. Yes, it falls into this a lot of the same traps that a lot of the MCU movies do. You can argue about how interesting of a villain Thanos actually is, but he's consistent. All the characters are consistent. I think this movie is just well structured, well made, well thought out, and I applaud them for putting this together and pulling it off, which is a monumental task. It is. I mean, this is like the first time we've ever seen a shared universe actually just work as well as this has. And mm-hmm. I, I we'll not see something like this uh, again in over, I don't know, in such a long time. Maybe we will, but something on this kind of a scale has, you're right, it's a huge cinematic achievement. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. I don't think we're going to see this again, even from the MCU. I I, I doubt they're going to be able to pull this off again because it's just it's like a lightning <laughs> never strikes twice kind of a thing. It is. And I think we, it was just like the, the perfect timing of just the right actors, the right people, the right, you know, characters that they're brought into this Avenger Affinity Wars that they all just worked. And from here on out, we'll not see anything up to that kind of, you know, standard again, but we might see something that, you know, in small doses, but this was a huge achievement. I agree with you, Joe, on that. I haven't seen Endgame. I've seen up Infinity War and then a few of the other ones here and there but yeah from whatever thing you're saying this is going to be the you know the universe that everything else is going to be judged against this this is going to be the pinnacle yeah i absolutely agree uh all right alex what's your number seven all right so number seven we got king gizzard and the lizard wizard with- <laughs> what i don't know what this is but i need to listen to it immediately so that's the band name on their album infest the rat's nest so uh, King Giz is there a uh, Please don't call it King Giz. I, I don't think Joe's going to be able to like keep a straight face. <laughs> I got to mute my mic. I don't know what I'm going to do. You want me to just call him Lizard Wizard? Is that much better? No, that doesn't help. <laughs> so anyway, these guys are a uh, psychedelic uh, rocks, garage rock band from uh, Australia. These guys are another incredibly prolific band. Since 2012, they've put out 15 albums, with five of those albums being released in 2017. From that, um, 2019 is their first year back recording. Took 2018 off, as they probably needed to, (laughs) if not to just relax, if just to tour at least. But Infest the Rats Nest is is a kind of a unique entry into their discography in that it's their first metal album. 
they've played around, like I said, with a lot of psychedelic rock. They've done, I think, a folk album. They've done like psychedelic pop. They've, you know, been all over the place, as you kind of might imagine, over 15 records. But this is their first like actual metal album. Um, and so for this one, they meant, went with more of like a thrash metal, stoner metal. And this was a big one, like I said. I mean, obviously, because it's a, it's a new direction for them. It's their first entry into metal, and they already just kind of like nailed it. All the psych is still there. It's got the same kind of like guitar tones. So it's still the band, but it's just in a different kind of, uh, you know, little genre. So just being able to kind of really get into a new genre and be able to just pull it off so well right off the bat is kind of is something to be kind of amazed by. It's it's a really fun album, too. It's not so heavy um, that it's going to throw a lot of people off who aren't, you know, really into metal. Um, so, it you know, it's something that you can get into. The tracks that stood out really, um, the opening track, Planet B, you know, t- t- kind of talking about like how Mars is supposed to be the new Earth. That's a really good one. Um, my favorite track on there is the like nearly seven minute uh, Superbug. The chorus to that is just gonna is is something that's gonna get stuck in your head like just day in and day out as it did for me, um, and that's that one's kind of more about how there's gonna be a virus that's gonna wipe out the entire Earth population, and that's why we have to go to Mars. So as weird and as odd as the band name is and as weird as their music can be and, and definitely has been um they don't play it sort of it's not su- some super wacky and you know oddball record it's it it sits right in like the night nice and easy in the uh you know thrash and stoner metal genres and yeah it, like i said they just nailed it for the for their first metal album so it pops to them Alex, yeah. nothing you have said has turned me off to these. I need to listen to them immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you want something a little more, you know, not something so, uh, I guess, aggressive or heavy, um, I would say go with their album, their 2016 album, uh, Nonagon Infinity. That one's more kind of what they're more, more known for, the psychedelic garage rock kind of stuff. And that's a really good one. It's a cool record, too, in that it's an infinite loop. Like if you have the if you you if you set it on repeat, it'll just every track blends right into the next. The last track blends right into the first, and you can keep going for infinity. That's awesome. That actually reminds me of uh, when I was in high school. I came up with an idea for a trilogy of movies where one leads into the next, leads into the next, and it's just like a never-ending loop. So that's 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 a really interesting idea. Yeah, nice. it's cool. Yeah, like I said, it's it, they're they're a lot of fun to listen to. Um, I love their guitar tone. Just the sound of it all is is fantastic and. You know, with them being so prolific, and, you know, there's there's a ton to love with them. Awesome. All right, Nate, what you got? All right, for number seven on my list, I have a Marriage Story. What I love about Nicole, she is a mother who plays, really plays. What I love about Charlie, he loves being a dad. He loves all the things you're supposed to hate, like waking up at night. She knows when to push me and when to leave me alone. He never lets other people keep him from what he wants to do. Dad, you're too far. I know. It's not easy for her to close a cabinet. He's incredibly neat. She's brave. He's brilliant. She's He's very, very competitive. This is something from Noah Baumbach, who, if you guys are not familiar, he has a lot of indie background. Um, he's worked with Greta Gerwig for, you know, quite a few of his projects, Francis Ha being one of them. But, you know, he's known for, if anyone remembers this guy when he first came on the scene, The Squid and the Whale, which he tackles uh, his own experience as a kid when his parents went through a divorce. This one is kind of set a little bit more in kind of like his own personal experience as well. But aside from all that, what I love about this movie is the sheer honesty that just shines through this. This is not an unpleasant movie. Even though it's talking about divorce, there's some just great stuff in this. Um, this is actually some of the best acting I've seen from both Adam Driver as well as Scarlett Johansson. I don't think I've seen her act as well in just any movie. And what's really wonderful about this is there's a certain catharsis that I can feel between the two of them, and it feels so believable. And yet when they really get into their arguments with each other or you start really seeing like them trying to chisel away at each other, you feel a little bit more of the hurt. Um, there's a lot of people who've compared this to like Kramer versus Kramer. And I had my doubts going in this movie. I'm thinking, I don't know if there's going to be ever a, a good enough movie that will top that. I think this movie does. 
in such a wonderful way that it gives hope that even after something like this, there is still a chance for people who go through this experience to still find something that they can latch onto. And I don't know, I, I, there's something about like, I, there's, there's a lot of stuff I like about this. Um, and it's one thing that I just, I applaud Netflix for just taking, you know, a risk on this. Cause it's, it's a very, very heart wrenched, but very heartfelt movie at the same time. Um, and I don't know, there's just moments in there that I just felt so real. Like there's a scene where they're trying to break the news like, oh, yes, we are actually going through a separation and here's the manila folder. And just Adam Driver's reaction is just like, I don't understand. And him just not knowing how to cope with it. it it's just those little moments that I think just make this movie just feel very uh, raw, but also very sentimental at the same time. Yeah, this is, this is another one that I haven't had a chance to get around to, but I've heard a lot of people talking about it. Uh, so I'm very interested to check this out. I love Francis Ha. So I, uh, yeah, I'm curious to see this one. Yeah, I will say there are moments that do get a little heavy and it gets pretty vicious at times. But in some way or another, you kind of just, you take it what it is and you don't like feel like one person's the villain in all this. It's just these two people who've just been, you know, thrown into this and they're kind of just going through this, not knowing what to do. And it just kind of shows just the, the truth about this, that it's never an easy experience to go through, but there is some hope at the end. And I think that was something I was kind of just worried, like, okay, is there going to be a silver lining in all this? And there is. And I kind of do like how it just bookends perfectly that way. All right. So let me see. Diving down to my number seven is Godzilla, King of the Monsters by Michael Doherty. I was going <laughs> to say, you know, Godzilla's got to come up somewhere in this list it's for you, John. got to pop up on my list. Oh my. They're moving like a pack. They're hunting. They all respond directly to an alpha. We stop this Ghidorah. We stop them all. Is there another creature that might stand a chance against him? I grew up watching those uh, 60s and 70s Godzilla movies, especially Mechagodzilla was one of my favorites. Uh, so this one was just a big old ball of giant monster mash fun that I was <laughs> hoping from it. Uh, my only real qualm with this movie is that the camera work was a little bit too shaky. Just kind of that shaky, dark camera work kind of a thing where everything's shrouded in mist and darkness and moving around a lot. It's difficult to tell what's going on but the scale of these monsters works the story is just it's it works it's a competent story i can't say it's like an amazing story or anything like that but it's perfect for the kind of movie that this is i honestly went into this just for big monster fun and that is exactly what the movie delivered in spades there's tons of monster action i love gareth edwards uh godzilla from several years back I think that movie works fantastically. Uh, I, I think it uses the monster footage to its best effect, sparingly. Uh, this one is like the opposite of that, but it also works. Where just they throw monsters at you left and right throughout the entire movie. <laughs> there, there's a lot of monsters in this, by the way. Like they, when they kind of just start popping up and you get the scale of these things, it's like this is this is a lot. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot of a movie. And it's I, I just enjoy every minute of it. You know, it goes by and and, and I I enjoy the actors too. Um, I a Vera, Vera Farmiga. I I just finished watching Bates Motel several months back. I talked about it on the on the podcast. She's a fantastic actress. She's great in this movie. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown is great in this movie. Kyle Chandler is always great. <laughs> um, I I I love the callbacks to the original series. Ken Watanabe has a Beautiful little callback to the original Godzilla where they bring in the Oxygen Destroyer uh, and play around with that weapon's legacy from the original film and how it's used here. Uh, Godzilla, you get to see him in uh, on a couple different phases where he, oh, they get to power him up different ways. That's cool. A lot of these movies, I say, are the equivalent of kids smashing together action figures. This is almost kind of like that, but with a well-structured story 
fantastic actors and uh, likable characters surrounding it. So yeah, I I, I love this movie. It's a, it's a very fun movie. Anyway, that is my number seven. Uh, Alex, let's move on to your number six. All right, so number six, we got The All Devouring by Solomon. This is a Russian band. This is their first album, actually. It's, uh, again, atmospheric black metal, but it mixes it with a bit of um, Black Gaze. And so for Black Gaze, if you're not familiar with, um, it's a combination of black metal and shoegaze. So it kind of has the like tremolo picking of like black metal, the harsh vocals, the blast beats, but it's, it's a lot brighter sounding um, than your kind of general atmospheric black metal uh, has like the wall of sound that you get from shoegaze and blends a bit of like um, kind of like post rock elements as well into it. There's nothing really that like stands out about it as far as like, this is what they did differently or they brought in this new extra genre or, you know, it has this one specific aspect that makes it its own unique thing. It, it doesn't like, it doesn't break the mold. It just fits into the mold and it just does what it does really well. Um, it's still got that atmospheric black metal undertone kind of laying there and, and giving it a bit of colder sound. I mean, you know, coming from Russia, that's, you know, kind of a, maybe, you know, a product of the environment. But like I said, nothing really that like stood out specifically about it but it was just all really good there was no real point where it was just you know something dragged or this part could have been cut um it was all just i mean i keep saying it over and over it's all just good it's not a terribly long album either it's only com- comes in at about like 37 minutes so for black gaze atmospheric black metal that's that's a maybe a little bit on the shorter side to be honest i mean sometimes those can go over 50 over an hour well how many tracks are on this album because sometimes i'll play into how long the album is uh four tracks oh well there you go <laughs> yeah ranging from seven minutes 58 seconds to 1048 so okay but yeah like i said it it hits those like soaring highs that you can expect from like some uh black gaze but it's it's like I said, still got that atmospheric black metal tone that'll that'll stick with it throughout, and um, it's never really so much those two genres kind of battling it out and you know trading places. It's just working together and really complementing each other really well. Okay, so basically, it's kind of like if anyone's interested in dabbling in this genre and they want like a good full spectrum, but not something that's going to take up a lot of their time. This is a, a good album you'd recommend. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. This is this is a solid intro to to Black Gaze. I mean, if you wanted to go kind of away from more of the really well known albums of like Deaf Heaven and Alcest, you can definitely hit up this one, and it'll give you a good idea of. Of uh, like what um, like what black gaze and a little bit of atmospheric black metal can really sound like, and it's cool coming from a, from a brand new band, their first album. This is a uh, uh, this is definitely a band to watch. It's definitely putting them on the radar. It sounds like mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. I mean, they already got a really good base level, so let's see if they can keep it up. I mean, you know, as they progress, uh, you know, some bands kind of lose their uh, lose their footing a little bit, but you know. With as strong as as this album is, uh, I don't necessarily expect it. Awesome. All right, Nate, what's your number six? Number six for me is the wonderful, delightful, family fun movie, The Lighthouse. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I knew it was going to pop up. <laughs> so we've already reviewed this movie in our, on our channel. Uh, I don't know. I, I love this movie. I love its commitment to the subject, to the story, to the style. For, for me, this is a movie that just works. And I don't know, I, I like how Robert Eggers is just one of those guys who he's really branding himself as being like a, a kind of like an, I wouldn't say an old timey kind of like horror thriller filmmaker, but he's definitely dabbling in like classical literature and bringing that as like his premise of what he's basing his stories around. And I, I, there's just something about William Defoe and Robert Pattinson's performances in this that they just work so well. And it's just a story where you're not sure what's going on. You don't know what's at play here, but it's giving you a, a very horrific, but very psychedelic, like, experience there's there's just a lot of going on in there and i like how open-ended it is about what this is all about and it really it's a kind of one of those movies where you can go back and watch it and find something new in it but i don't know for me i think it was just 
Roger Eggers' commitment to this of just shooting in black and white, trying to kind of capture this four by three aspect ratio and just sticking to that. Like that's something really hard. And I think it was very jarring for a lot of people watching this, seeing the, the whole square like frame. But I don't know. I think for me, I just the the photography is just what lent itself so brilliantly to this. So, you know, that's my number six. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, this is the one, one of the two movies that I've seen, so I can actually comment on it. But yeah, this was this was an incredible one. Um, that just it's it's just so thoroughly engaging in just everything that it goes for. Um, you know, as weird as and as wild as absolutely wild as it gets, um, it never really kind of loses your interest in it. Yeah, and I'm a. I, I like how it's not afraid to hold back on exploring all these different facets of these two men who are stuck here on this island, you know, as all kind of hell is breaking loose in the midst of this tempest that they find themselves in, and it, there's just some images that are quite horrific that just pop out of nowhere, but when they do, oh, do they stick with you? Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah well, uh, I think you guys all know my thoughts on on the movie. I, I I like the movie quite a bit. I'm gonna go ahead and plug our podcast here. If you haven't listened to our full discussion of the Lighthouse, we have a full video, not a podcast episode, but an actual video where we talk about the Lighthouse on <laughs> our YouTube channel. Yeah. So go check it out if you want to hear more of Joe's opinions about this wonderful classic. Yes, I will. I'll tease you guys with that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, Mm-hmm. My number six is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling that was going to get pretty high on your list. Yeah, of course, it's got to pop up there. It's a Ryan Johnson joint. The night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. And your son, Ransom, did he attend as well? Yes, but he left early. I think Linda was upset. Walt would get a little Irish courage in him. He'd get into it with Harlan. What? Richard said what? Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? You think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. This movie is interesting because it works as in just a conventional whodunit, but it twists things around a little bit for the modern day. Uh, so, for instance, what, one thing that I found a little bit jarring, actually, was that it, it, it is very modern. You have people throwing around all these kind of modern slang terms. Uh, one character describes herself as an Instagram influencer, and uh, you have a lot of political commentary, uh, which was kind of interesting. I think it's going to date the movie, not in a great way it's it's, it's gonna be very much a product of its time on the other hand i it it was also unconventional in a positive way in how it twists things around in the structure of a whodunit because it is kind of a typical whodunit but the way the story unfolds is unlike anything i've seen like for instance from murder on the Orient express or from any other older 70s or 50s movies because it reaches where you seemingly know everything and the movie just kind of keeps going and you're like, well, this isn't a whodunit anymore. This is just kind of a thriller, a thriller comedy. But then it comes back around and you find out more information. So the movie, it's like a slinky where it unspools a whole lot of information and then tightens it back down and seems to bring everything back together and then unspools even more information and it kind of goes, kind of goes back and forth like that throughout the movie. And it works great. It's a, It's quite a ride yeah i i I think i I mentioned this somewhere that rain johnson kind of has this trademark in his style of subverting genres and our expectations when it comes to genre pictures like this one where he will do something in any film that he's done where he will subvert your expectations but then give you something else as a, a result of that and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but this is one where he is doing something new and innovative with it and the fact that he's trying to introduce this to a modern day audience is just showing he's kind of trying to uh make this genre relevant again and in a fresh way yeah and i'm glad that whodunits are making a comeback because this this movie is i mean it 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 twists things around a little bit and restructures the 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 old formula but it really is at its heart a love letter to old-fashioned whodunits Mm -hmm. 
you know, with the old rustic setting and the costumes and the over-the-top performances, which some people may find to be a little bit too over-the-top. I thought it worked great for this movie. There's a lot of dialogue in this movie, and the dialogue never felt dry because of the colorful characters. So yeah, this movie scratched my whodunit itch, which Murder on the Orient Express did when it came out, and I expect that Death on the Nile will when it comes out. Uh, so yeah, I hope that this brings about a new era of whodunits, because I, I like those. I like those movies. Yeah, overall, though, this is definitely an experience that was pretty high on your list. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that concludes the first half of our very special two-part Top 10 Movies of 2019 episode. Click the link below to watch the next episode where we talk about our top five through number one movies slash albums, if you're Alex's case, uh, in our next video. Don't forget to follow us at filmliterates.com or twitter.com slash filmliterates.